0: This is a very special weekend. This is Palm Sunday weekend, also known as the, the weekend or the, or the day of triumphal entry. Right, right. Jesus makes his grand entrance into Jerusalem. As we jump into this, these passages, the word of the Lord today, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, where we invite your word to transform us. We know that uh, in our flesh, you know, your word says, the flesh is no help at all. And God, we, we, we just received that right now. And we say, Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts. Holy Spirit, have your way in my words. God, if, if, if I share anything that is of the flesh, I pray that it would, be, it would fall and be forgotten and that it would be your word, your truth, that is planted deep inside of our hearts so that we might be changed from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, at this time, in the, in, in the, the little part of the church gathering that we call the sermon or the message, I I would typically deliver the the primary text that we'll be talking about today. I would give you the context for the text, and then I would go on to tell you a story that I believe, usually a story from my own personal life or something that's happening in culture, in order to communicate what I would believe that a, a truth that Scripture is trying to get across to us. You're familiar with that kind of structure of a message? You've probably, if you've heard me preach before, you've heard me use that structure. And I'll probably use that structure again. I think it's helpful, it can be effective. But I could not go that direction today. I tried. I was, I was studying, I was, I was praying, I was preparing for this, and I go, we gotta throw that out the window because I, I believe that God wants to uh, take us on a journey uh, this morning, this weekend. It is the morning, it is Sunday morning, not Saturday night, correct? Um, he wants to take us on a journey through time this weekend with scripture as our guide from Genesis to Revelation. Now, I'm not gonna use such a diversity of scripture from from Genesis to Revelation in order to try to give you a list of of out of context verses in order to make a point. But rather, I lay these passages before you because it would seem that that God the Father was very, very intent on telling a specific story throughout scripture about a person named Jesus, his son. Now, this story may be very familiar to you, the story that I'm gonna to tell today. I, I, I imagine it'll be familiar to a lot of you, but would you just, can I, can I invite you to do something today? Yes, again, yes, yes. I, I would invite you to open your hearts to the, to the possibility that God just might show us a new angle of his face, a new chamber of his heart, today in a familiar story, maybe in a little bit different way. So as promised, Genesis. Genesis, as is hinted by its name, is the first book of scripture. Its Hebrew name is Bereshith, which means in the beginning. And so appropriately, it is a story of origins, origins of the world, more importantly, Origins of the relationship between God and human beings. First, perfect, then broken because of sin. It is also the story of the birthing of a nation that God would call his own. You see, God, he would make this thing called the covenant, this agreement with a man who was called Abram, but then Abraham because God gave a part of his name to Abram. He would establish this covenant through 12 tribes, the 12 great grandsons of Abraham, the sons of Jacob. Jacob, whose new name given by God would be shared with this nation that I speak of, which we, which we know of as Israel or Israel. In Genesis 49, this Jacob or Israel, he gives this prophetic blessing over each of his sons, including his son Judah. Now, I would ask you to remember the name Judah today because that name is going to be a very important name to the story. Genesis 49, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion as, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. About 400 years after this prophetic blessing from Jacob to his sons, these 12 tribes grow and they are becoming a nation. In 400 years, We find this nation of Israel in captivity and servitude to another nation, which we know as, come on church, Egypt. Okay, here we are. (laughs) Bible stories, Sunday school. I know not all of you went, but a lot of you did. Okay, Egypt. (laughs) God was not content to leave his people in this captivity. And so he raised up for himself a deliverer. I'm going to give you another chance. A deliverer from among them whose name is? Yes. And Moses is at God's, Moses at God's command, he contends with the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, to let the people of Israel go. I'm not going to let you just sit 909, go, well, uh, I'm, I'm just waiting for the Gonzaga game. You can engage with me until then. Engage with me. Okay. First things first. Right, Cody? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. Hardened to such an extent that he would endure nine plagues. Nine plagues without budging. Well, budging a little bit, but not really. But then there was a tenth plague. This tenth plague would break his resolve and cause him to finally let the people of Israel go. What is that tenth plague? Very interesting tenth plague. The death of Oh, good, you guys are, this is awesome. Yeah, you guys can say it if you want. The death of the firstborn of every animal, every animal and child, every firstborn dead, except with this, this very interesting exception. We look back and we go, oh yeah, this is the story of that. But imagine how the people felt when this instruction was given. All the firstborn animals and people are going to be killed, except those who take a flawless lamb Kill the lamb, spread the blood on the doorpost, and I will pass over you. An instruction only given to the nation of Israel at this time. And what we have for birth from this is this incredibly important, what you could call holiday, celebrated on an annual basis by the Jewish people called Passover, and Seder is a part of that, Passover or Pesach, a representation of their freedom from Egypt. This Passover tradition is described in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. For those of you who are turning, I'll give you a second. I heard you turning last time, so you can go ahead. and You don't have to turn. It's going to be on the sky. It's already there. Here we go. Dude, production's on point today. Seriously, Hudson I see you on projection keeping up with those lyrics. I see you How many of you guys appreciate lyrics being kept up with so that we me Inside of me Oh I know you feel me. Okay. (laughs) Exodus 12, verse one. We love our production team. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Passover. Now over the next 1,500 years, Now we're going to, this is going to be a long, I mean, it's going to be a short summary of a long amount of time. Over the next 1,500 years, this nation, they, of course, have been, they have escaped from Egypt, and they go and possess, they conquer and and, and inhabit this land, the land of Canaan. And it becomes, I mean, it is this promised land, this land of Israel. They would be ruled, for a short amount of time, there would be these judges, these, these prophetic ministers who would deliver the word of the Lord and be guides for the nation, but Israel wanted kings. God, we want to be like all the other nations around us. Can't we be cool and have kings? You don't want that. Yes, we do. All right. They would be ruled. That's a paraphrase, by the way. It's not exactly how it went, but basically. They would be ruled by mostly evil kings with a few key exceptions. The most notable of those exceptions being a certain king named David. David, We are on it. Yes. Now we're there. 909. You are with me. I feel you. King David, who was of the tribe of, you guessed it, Judah, Judah. they would be warned and rebuked by prophets, but their treachery ran deep and the redemption stayed shallow. Now the celebration of Passover would not always be honored during these times as a part of Israel's deep rebellion against God, but there would be another good king who would raise up. Around 619 B.C., there would be this young king named Josiah, and he would make great reforms and reestablish the practice of Passover, but his reforms would hardly outlive him. And because of Israel's, the way that the Bible describes it, their stiff-neckedness, they would eventually be led into a Babylonian exile, You've heard of King Nebuchadnezzar, a big part of that. Now, Passover would continue in exile, but it would be transformed. The exile would become part of the Passover story for these Jewish people in the midst of exile. Now, in the midst of these evil kingships and this exile, I told you about these prophets that would be sent from God, not only to warn not only to rebuke, but also to come with some very encouraging news, this news of a Messiah, right, right. This, this, this prophetic vision of this Savior King who would come from the line of David and thus Judah and deliver Israel from their plight once again. Of course, when you hear me say Messiah, most of us know that Our great protagonist is about to enter the scene, even though he's been at the center of the story the whole time. Born of a virgin, in the line of David of the tribe of Judah, Jesus of Nazareth hits earth in human form, son of a carpenter and a carpenter himself for about the first 30 years of his life. As his time approaches, his cousin John, we know John the Baptist, he ate the locusts and honey, thought he was crazy. You can't please people. John comes neither eating nor drinking. Jesus comes eating and drinking. You just can't please the world. Anyway, not what I'm preaching on. So Jesus' cousin, John, he, he, John sees him coming from a distance, and he introduces him in the most peculiar of fashions. Now, we look at it and we go, oh, yes, it's all a part of the story. But imagine how the people around felt when John the Baptist sees his cousin and goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow. Yeah. Isn't this guy your cousin? Did I stutter? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John baptizes Jesus and thus begins his formal ministry as Messiah. Now you have to think, again, we look at the life of Jesus and it makes so much sense to us because of the story of the gospel, we're on this end of it, but try to imagine being one of the people who is encountering Jesus for the first time. You have this guy who preaches of an invisible kingdom in which he is the ruler. He teaches this way of living that is so beyond the Mosaic moral code. Somehow bringing this grace, but also this raising of the standard at the same time. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He goes about in signs and wonders, healing and delivering the oppressed. But then also, he seems to be very intent on foretelling this tragic suffering and death that he must undergo in order to fulfill his purpose. What an interesting fellow. All those things at the same time, the same person. Now about three years into his ministry, the time comes for Jesus to make his grand entrance into Jerusalem. And so we come to this day, the triumphal entry. And the scene is described by one of Jesus's best friends, if I could say it like that. Well, at least this guy thought he was. He describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we hear the telling of this part of the story in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And yet, and Jesus found a donkey and sat on it just as it is written fear not daughter of zion behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt now you probably heard me read this part and totally skipped over it because why would it be significant the next day that's how verse 12 begins the next day and what what day would that be well in verse 1 of john chapter 12 we see that John is talking about six days before Passover. So what would be the next day after six days before Passover? It would be five days before Passover, good. And five days before Passover. Now, Seth, why in the world are you making a point about how many days before Passover Jesus makes his triumphal entry? Well, recall Exodus 12. On the 10th day of the first month, every man shall take a lamb for his household but not just any lamb. The lamb must be without blemish and to make sure of that must undergo stringent examination. And if it is found to be flawless, after several days it will be killed at twilight. Isn't it interesting? Jesus makes his triumphal entry on the day that the Jewish people would know as the first day of the examination of the lamb. He rides in to be examined, to be proven as our Passover. Beautiful. Now, for those who follow Jesus, it's not controversial at all for me to echo the words of Paul in calling, in calling Jesus our Passover lamb. You may even think, how could the Jewish people, knowing these great details of Passover, not see this? He comes in on the day of examination and he's killed when the Passover lamb would be taken and killed. But I would just ask you for a moment to get in their shoes. Because most of Israel at this time, when they were waiting upon this Messiah, they were not looking for a lamb. They were looking for a lion. Why do you say that, Seth? They were expecting this great redeemer king who would deliver them from their oppression, the one Isaiah speaks of in this way. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They were looking for a conqueror, the lion of the tribe of Judah, which, of course, Jesus is and was. But that is only part of his character and identity. And his victory looked quite different than Israel was expecting. But can you blame them? Remember, they don't have all the information that we have today. They don't get to look back on everything and see how everything ties together. What they saw, death on a cross. Hardly the picture of an earthly champion. We can easily look at the people of Jerusalem that praised Jesus on Sunday and then mocked him on Friday with great judgment in our hearts. But I'm not so sure that we are not guilty of a very similar offense in our interactions with this Jesus. Are you offended at me yet? We're not like that, certainly. How many of us have chosen a particular element of the identity of Jesus and decided that because it resonates with us, that that is Jesus in his fullness. And if it is him in his fullness, then it is the only part of Jesus which we need follow or embody. Perhaps you resonate with the sentiment of Israel at the time. You're comfortable with Jesus as ruler and overcomer, and you don't mind following him down the path of the lion. But you can hardly stomach Jesus as the meek, lowly, ransom, and sacrificial lamb. And you dare not dwell on that element of his identity for fear that if you accept it fully, you must reckon with your own pride and tendency towards self-preservation. Or more likely in the United States of America in 2021, You might have quite accepted Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, very grateful for the way that he humbled himself and gave his life to save you, but you squirm at the idea that this Jesus is also a fierce lion who is wholly good, but not at all safe. You can't handle Jesus as this conqueror and this ruler, this lion who, you know, you're feeling good. You go, well, I got my registration to eternal life from Jesus the lamb. But Jesus the lion is here reigning over every thought, every word, and every action in this life. But you don't want to accept that reality because the only reasonable response to it is that we would be completely surrendered and completely transformed. As you can see, maybe we should be a bit slower to condemn these people who had a hard time wrapping their mind around this paradoxical Messiah. Have we only accepted him as lion? Have we only worshiped him as lamb? Now the inconvenient and beautiful truth of the matter is that we don't get to choose one. He is either both or he is neither. And as his followers, our responsibility is to follow him in his fullness. We are bold overcoming rulers, and yet somehow at the very same time, we are meek, suffering servants. We serve a Messiah of paradox, and therefore we must be a people of paradox. We are a people of truth that seems like it couldn't possibly be true, and yet it couldn't possibly be truer. We are a nation, a people, a kingdom of lions and lambs. Not lions and lambs but lions and lambs. You don't get to go, well, I'm one of the lions or I'm one of the lambs. We don't get to choose. We must follow him in his fullness. Now, I wanna close with a passage that can be a bit overwhelming in its prophetic imagery and frankly, kind of difficult to understand. But in its complexity, I find Did it bring some completion to this story? Now, this text is from the book of Revelation. I promised Genesis to Revelation, right? Which is the final piece of our biblical canon. It is more or less a prophetic vision given to the Apostle John during his time of exile on the island of Patmos for his work as a Christian missionary. And it is the style of this writing is apocalyptic in nature, which explains just how much symbolism is found. Now, I am not today, I don't have the time or really the depth of knowledge at this point to try and interpret this entire passage for you. There's lots of people who have been spending lots of years doing that. However, I want to encourage you to look for a very specific thing. Look for the description of the one who is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Listen closely. Revelation 5, starting in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb. lamb standing as though it had been slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Isn't that interesting? There is no distinction. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And what did they see? The lamb. The lamb as one who has been slain who was open who was worthy to open the scroll the lion who was worthy to open the scroll the lamb two people not at all the lion and the lamb slain for our ransom and yet this ruler who has made us kings and priests to rule with him on the earth would you stand with me? Well, I want to leave you with a question today to ponder. You don't have to answer it uh, verbally. It would, it would take a long time. I know I've encouraged you to do that throughout the rest of the gathering, but this one will be rhetorical. Will you accept Jesus on his own terms, in his fullness? Will you follow and worship and serve that Jesus? Or will you accept the Jesus that makes you feel quite comfortable in your current political leanings, opinions, ways of doing life? The Jesus that suits you just right. I hope that you will choose the former, and here's why. The Jesus that only suits your opinions, your leanings, your philosophies isn't actually Jesus, it's you. When we worship, only the elements of this Jesus that are agreeable to us we are worshiping ourselves no no I heard it said from from a famous writer he said seek truth and you may find some comfort seek comfort and you will find neither Why would I say that to you? Well, a lot of us are really, we're really bent on this idea of how could a good God, I could never worship a God who, if he's good, then, but I would lay this before you. Maybe, We should be asking less, is God good according to my current understanding of good? And we should be more asking, is he true? Because if he is true, if he is true in the way that his word says he is true, then um, don't let this offend you, but we had better get on board with who he is. And we had better learn to love those things which we currently don't understand. I look at it a little bit like marriage. We enter into marriage and we know just about this much about our spouse. We're like, oh my goodness, they're so funny and cute, and, and, and never mind these dopamine levels that are totally you know clouding my judgment and all that. But then we get into it and we find this whole other set of truths about our spouse. And we go, now what is that? <laughs> Now, in this culture, there is an easy way out. We go, well, you're not quite who I was expecting. So I'm going to exit stage right. But if we understand covenant, then we will bend ourselves to go, I don't know if I like that about you. I don't know if I understand that about you. But I'm in this. And so... I had better start learning to love those things which are currently annoying me or that I currently don't understand. I would just lay that before you. I would lay that before you because this God is good, but more importantly, He's true. He's true. Let me pray for you. Father, we, uh, we're we so grateful for... Who you are in your fullness, your son Jesus, the lion and the lamb, that you are ferocious and reigning and ruling and a mighty warrior, and yet you are so meek, this, this, this humble lamb who would, who would give yourself for us. Lord, I pray that you would move upon our hearts to follow you in all that you are, not just how we would like you to be, in Jesus' name.